0: This is Trump Watch. I'm John Wiener, live in L.A. on 90.7 KPFK, talking about what Trump is actually doing, not just what he's tweeting. Later in the show, Trump and Syrian refugees. During Obama's last year, about 15,000 were admitted to the United States. So far this year, the number... Is eleven. Wendy Perlman will explain. She interviewed hundreds of Syrian refugees across the Middle East and Europe. Her new book is "We Crossed the Bridge and It Trembled: Voices from Syria." But first, the American military from 9/11 to Donald Trump. Trump Watch starts right now. Donald Trump said we need a big boost in Pentagon spending. He asked for and got a $74 billion increase over current levels of spending for weapons and troops. Today, the American military is the most massive, the most technologically advanced, and the best-funded fighting force in the world. But in the last 15 years of constant war from George W. Bush to Donald Trump, it has won nothing. For comment, we turn to Tom Engelhart. He's the legendary editor who created and runs the Tom Dispatch website. His earlier books include The End of Victory Culture, a book about the Cold War which had a huge impact on me. His new book is called A Nation Unmade by War. Tom Engelhardt, welcome back.
1: Hey, John. I, you know, I think I may p- pick up that book. It sounds interesting.
0: <laughs> <laughs> well, you say the American military is the best-funded fighting force in the world of course another way of saying that is that it's the most expensive how expensive is it
1: oh now that's an interesting question i mean i, I there's a, a, an expert who writes for tom dispatch uh, william hartung and and he figured he figured up what went into the whole national security budget now that does include our our staggering 17 major intelligence outfits and so on and so forth but the figure was a trillion dollars a year. Not every bit of that is, is the military, but then again, there's some military money that goes, goes into the Energy Department for nuclear stuff. It's a lot of money. It's a staggering amount of money. It's the sort of money that if, they, if you were to begin to put it into American infrastructure, we would have, hey, high-speed rail and highways without holes and whatever. It would be stunning. But, uh, but it's the one, I would call it infrastructural, the one kind of infrastructure into which Congress will put money incessantly in a bipartisan fashion. There is nothing else.
0: You say never has a great power in its imperial prime proven so incapable of achieving its aims. What are the aims of America's wars, and where were they first articulated?
1: i mean it 's actually a difficult question to answer, partially for this reason. I, I, we have to return to the in essence the days after nine eleven yes, to answer the question. and the nine eleven triggered something here i mean in, in, in the Bush administration, if you remember them, and all the neocons of that moment. If you remember, at the time of 9-11, we were still, well, we were calling ourselves the sole superpower, the last superpower. You know, we were the one who had won. The Soviet Union had imploded in 1991. We were all that was left. And the, the crew who, who made up the, the, the top levels of the, uh, the Bush administration, when this happened, Almost immediately, I remember Donald Rumsfeld was reported in the, in essence, the ruins of the Pentagon because it had been hit by one of those planes. Saying, I still remember the quote, "Sweep it up, sweep it all up." To his aides, they wrote it down, and it was later reported. And what he, of course, meant was he already grasped. Okay. Uh, Al Qaeda, so on, but he was already thinking, and so were they all of more. He was thinking of Saddam Hussein in Iraq, he was thinking of the the those guys when they when they almost immediately declared war on a small group of jihadis, they were already imagining a world in which they were the last imperial power, and they could have it all, so the initial aims of what was almost instantly called a first a war and then a global war on terror was a kind of Pax Americana, first in the greater Middle East and then, of course, elsewhere. But I mean, what's been interesting in this period, and that's what you started asking the question about, is that unlike past imperial powers at their heights, we've been remarkably unable to use our military to control, to create a kind of an order. The British Empire, the Roman Empire, I mean, it was a brutal order. But it was a kind of order. We have instead, in you know, in, well, we're now past what 16 years of war from from from, you know, October uh, 2001, the beginning of the Afghan invasion. We have basically created disorder. I mean, in, in a way, I've always thought of this as the war not on terror, but in a way for terror, because it's created the conditions for spreading terror outfits
0: across a significant part of the planet. And the key to understanding the creation of disorder, the key concept I think is a blowback, which was first articulated I think by one of the great writers for Tom Dispatch, the late Chalmers Johnson. Let's talk about blowback.
1: Yes, he was the first person to write about it. I was uh, then a, a book editor when he when he wrote his book Blowback. I, I did his book, and when it came out before nine eleven, you know, the, I still remember the reviews. Formerly eminent. Professor and CIA consultant now basically ranting maniac, and then of course 9/11 hit, and people went, "Oh my God!" And it became a national bestseller, and so on and so forth. But his idea was that that these operations around the world that the American people knew in essence next to nothing or nothing about, that sooner or later they came in a way they came back home. Donald Trump, without the invasion of Iraq, the greatest disaster of this period out there in terms of war and foreign policy, without the invasion of Iraq, I, I think his, 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 the election of, of this strange character would have been inconceivable. He is blowback. Donald Trump
0: is blowback. Donald Trump is blowback. So what we what started with uh, George W. Bush and Dick Cheney in the wake of 9-11, you say, leads by a complicated path to the election of Donald Trump Uh, Let's talk a little bit more about how you think that happened.
1: Well, I think if you go back to the 2016 election campaign, one of the things that struck me, it struck me during the campaign, and I wrote about it then, to go back to his key slogan, which is MAGA, Make America Great Again. I still remember Hillary Clinton's people for millions of dollars in consulting fees coming up with the the monstrous response to that of uh, Make America Whole Again, the worst slogan ever (laughs) created in history. But make America great again, it was a great, it was an old age of Reagan slogan in a way. Trump picked it up. He grasped this early. After Romney's defeat, he began, he, I think he actually tried to trademark that. That had gone into his head, and it was effective. It rang a bell in the country, and it rang a bell because everybody focused on make America great, but they didn't focus on the key word, which was, again, he was the only American politician in twenty sixteen, who didn't feel obliged to say that we were the most exceptional, indispensable, great this nation ever in history. That was obligatory. It didn't matter whether you were Mario Rubio or or Obama. I mean Obama used it indispensable endlessly. It was uh, it was a nineteen ninety nine phrase of uh former Secretary of State Madeleine Albright. Trump said no. He said make America great again. That meant he was the only one who claimed it wasn't great then, and that rang a bell out there in the heartlands of the country for good reason because they already felt, they felt in essence, the blowback. It was the blowback not just from the wars but also the blowback from, from our new Gilded Age, which, which goes with the wars in a certain way.
0: So you say the American wars haven't achieved anything. Trump did promise during the campaign, I quote, we're going to beat ISIS very, very quickly, folks. Now he says he's fulfilled that promise, that the Islamic State in Syria is basically defeated. I wonder if you agree that the United States has defeated ISIS.
1: Well, I think the United States defeated what, what they were calling the, the kind of pseudo-caliphate there. I mean, I think that is, yes, ISIS no longer holds territory except in a small part of Syria the, near the Iraqi border. Clearly don't have much, but that was always a short-term thing, and they were never going to last. In the process of that, ISIS is a—it's uh, a—it's a global brand. There are ISIS branches now in Afghanistan and the Philippines. Those bombers in um... In Indonesia recently, were seem to have been ISIS supporters, and there's a, there's an ISIS branch in Libya. It's, uh, there there's their ISIS style now down in, towards towards Niger. If you remember that that incident in Niger left, that last October, before Green Berets died. In, in other words, yes, that's gone. But, but but the other striking thing is, it almost doesn't matter that that's gone. The U.S. whether it's Afghanistan, Syria, Libya. All of this, uh, in the in the Trump era, all of this stuff is, once again, as it, as it was in the Obama era and in the Bush era, it's being ramped up. More attacks in Somalia, more attacks in Yemen. Everything has gone up. And at the same time, the American people are paying remarkably little attention. This is a... Phenomenon of this whole period, not just of the Trump period. I mean, to give you one example, the the Taliban in the invasion of Afghanistan, the Taliban were driven out of their last prevent the last provincial capital they held early in 2002. Well, about a week ago, they took a a provincial capital for a day. This Mm. is this is 16 years later. What do you make of the the greatest force? In history, fighting the longest war in its history in Afghanistan for the second time since 1979, our second Afghan war. And 16 years later, the, the Taliban is, has grown stronger.
0: But there are critics of the Pentagon budget in, in Congress and critics of our war fighting strategy, aren't there?
1: Uh, in a modest sort of way, Yes. I think it's accurate to say that even the, most of the significant critics in Congress are really arguing for a smaller increase, less of the more, a less muscular version of what's there now. They're not really arguing for something else. I mean, let's remember that Congress has largely, except for putting up money, Congress has been cut out of the war process. The idea that Congress is responsible for declaring war is that that went that's that's from another century.
0: The last great empire might prove to be an empire of nothing at all. That's what Tom Engelhardt says in his new book, A Nation Unmade by War. Noam Chomsky calls it incisive, lucid, and brutally informative. Tom, thanks for this book. Thanks for everything you do at Tom Dispatch. And thanks for talking with us today.
1: Thank you so much, John. I enjoyed it.
0: The same old story. This is Trump Watch. I'm John Weiner, live in LA on KPFK and online anytime you want it at TrumpWatchPodcast.com. Now it's time to talk about Syrian refugees as the war in Syria continues. More than 5 million people have fled Syria since the civil war broke out there seven years ago. Most of them have gone to nearby countries in the Middle East. In 2016, the United States admitted around 15,000 Syrian refugees. That was Obama's last year. This year, with Trump as president, in the first three months, we've admitted 11, 11 Syrian refugees. For comment, we turn to Wendy Perlman. She teaches at Northwestern. She speaks fluent Arabic. She spent more than 20 years studying and living in Lebanon, Jordan, Egypt, Israel, the West Bank, and Gaza. She's written for the Washington Post, Harper's, and The Nation. Her new book, based on interviews with hundreds of ordinary Syrians across the Middle East, Europe, and the United States, is called We Crossed a Bridge and It Trembled, Voices from Syria. It's out now in paperback. Wendy Perlman, welcome to the program.
2: Thank you so much for having me.
0: Well, we have to start with Donald Trump, whose original travel ban prohibited all Syrians from entering the United States. Now there are a few Let's take up Trump's argument. He says we need, this is a quote, to keep radical Islamic terrorists out of the United States of America. We don't want them here. We want to ensure we aren't admitting into our country the very threats that our men and women are fighting overseas, close quote Donald Trump. So we need what he calls extreme vetting of Muslim refugees, especially Syrians, because because of ISIS. ISIS, of course, I-S-I-S, Islamic State inside Syria is what ISIS stands for. ISIS members from Syria, he says, could be disguising themselves as refugees to sneak into the United States. So that's why we need extreme vetting to keep terrorists out. What do you think about this argument? What do you know about what it takes for a Syrian to to get refugee status in the United States?
2: Well, I think that what it takes for a Syrian to get refugee status or anyone to get refugee status and be resettled in the United States is already to go through extreme vetting. That extreme vetting is the status quo, already there exists years of interviews, of background checks, of waiting, of paperwork, of all sorts of verifications. When you talk to asylum officers and resettlement officers, they say that already in existence um, has long been the most extreme vetting they could possibly imagine. And it only takes the most uh, minimal knowledge of the resettlement program to know that those are really false accusations.
0: Trump's ambassador to the United Nations, Nikki Haley, recently said that the Syrians she has met in refugee camps uh, do not want to come to the United States. Uh, Quoting from Nikki Haley, not one of the many that I talked to ever said, we want to go to America. They want to stay as close to Syria as they can, close quote. You've talked to hundreds of Syrian refugees. Did any of them tell you they'd like to come to America?
2: Uh, yes. I think that that Ambassador Haley's statement is also a a misrepresentation of a very complex reality. Uh, Most refugees want to return home, and Syrian refugees are no exception. People would like nothing more than to return to their their homes and their reality. The loss, the pain, um, the sheer earthquake it means in people's lives. So refugees do not flee easily. They flee because they fear for their lives. They flee because they worry that. if they stay one day longer, they might be killed by a chemical weapon or a barrel bomb or be arrested and die in a dungeon prison. Or they've come to realize that there's just no life um, where they are, that they might be conscripted into the army. So it's only the most severe dangers that force people to, to leave their homes. And once people leave, uh, you can imagine that there's a lingering desire to go back. It's not easy to be a foreigner in a new land to um, perhaps not have legal status, to live in the most uh, dire of conditions, perhaps in a tent or a bare apartment, to start life over. But what you have in the Syrian situation is after more than seven years of a brutal war and all types of violence used by a brutal regime that's been willing to do everything it needs to do and can do to stay in power, and a regime that has strong allies like Russia and Iran, Uh, supporting it militarily, economically, politically, what you have for many refugees is the reality that their homes no longer exist, their towns and neighborhoods and streets no longer exist. Um, And in addition, for many refugees who are fleeing the Assad regime, there's facing facing reality that that Assad regime seems to be consolidating power. More and more you have people saying it seems that the regime has won. It is reconquering slowly the territory that slipped from its control um, during the past seven years. So for refugees, many of them, there is, it's unthinkable to return to live under the Assad regime again. If they participated in any sort of dissent, there is no credible commitment that they can believe that if they return to Syria, they will not be killed by the same regime. They will not be arrested, they will not be tortured, they will not be disappeared. And even for those who were not active opponents participating in protest and so forth, there's still a tremendous amount of fear. What if they once posted something on Facebook that was critical of the regime? What if they have a friend or a relative who was critical of the regime? What if they're from a town or community or ethnic or religious group that is perceived as being critical? They also fear that if they go back, there will be no protection for their safety. So surveys that are done of Syrian refugees say, as Nikki Haley suggests, yes, they would like nothing more to return. But they also frequently say that they would not return unless there is some type of political transition leading to a post-Assad future, and they will not return unless there are some basic guarantees for their physical safety. And it is very difficult that it can be imagined it can be guaranteed under the current political circumstances and as long as Bashar al-Assad is in power. And that's why many refugees see no alternative but to try to start their lives over. And in those border countries that you mentioned, where there are currently about 5.6 million Syrian refugees, the largest number in Turkey, and smaller numbers in Jordan, in Lebanon, even some in Iraq and in Egypt. The conditions are tremendously dire. These are not countries that uh, recognize refugee status and asylum status for Syrian refugees. Rather, they're treated as guests. The overwhelming majority work in the informal economy, where they have exploitative conditions, very low wages, often unsafe conditions, no legal recourse. Some are in refugee camps. The overwhelming are urban refugees where they're struggling to pay rent in apartments and houses. There are hundreds of thousands of children who are not going to school instead who are working full-time, sometimes 12, 14 hours in factories in fields and sweatshops. Their lives are the definition of precarious, unsafe. For many refugees in that situation, yes. Of course, many would want to seek more stable opportunity elsewhere, which is why you had so many risking their lives in these inflatable boats to cross the Mediterranean, hope to get to Europe, and why you would have many, many, many more come to the United States and come to Canada and come to North America if they were allowed.
0: Let's talk about your interviews for this book. How many weeks and months have you spent interviewing refugees and where did you find them?
2: So I began doing these interviews in 2012, Um, I spent about uh, a month and a half, two months in Jordan interviewing Syrian refugees there, and then I continued to interview Syrian refugees for the next four years. So I returned to Jordan in 2013, and then spent several months in Turkey. And then I returned to Turkey in 2015, 2016, moved on to Lebanon, did some interviews even in the United Arab Emirates. And then as a large wave of of refugees moved on to um, Europe in 2015, I also moved on and did interviews with Syrian refugees in Denmark, Sweden, and Germany, and also did some interviews with Syrian refugees in the United States. So it was many weeks, many months, over a period of many years. And that time frame was useful because it really allowed me to see how refugee stories Evolved over time. It allowed me to access people of different walks of life. And in going to different countries, I was able to see how the refugee experience was different depending on where people wound up. My interviews were open ended, they were usually just uh, a space in which I asked someone to talk about his or her life, what this Syrian conflict had been like for him or her, and also about life before the conflict began, which was very important to help me put the Syrian uprising and then the Syrian war in a larger historical perspective.
0: One last thing. The title, We Crossed a Bridge and it Trembled, what does the title mean?
2: So the title is taken directly from one of these testimonials. It was so important for me to write a book that was exclusively in Syrian's own words. I collected these testimonials, and my job was that of a curator. I put them in a sequence. I, I... edited them for readability and for length, and created a mosaic of stories, a sort of series of conversations. It was important for me that the title would also be taken directly from those words. So the title is taken from a testimonial from a man, a man, describing a huge demonstration in spring 2011. This was the period when there were mass demonstrations, hundreds of thousands of people, peacefully, non-violently, without arms, going out into the streets and calling for freedom, calling for dignity, calling for change. And he describes one of these protests in which the crowd was so large, he said, that they crossed a bridge in his town. They crossed a bridge and it trembled under the weight of so many people. So it's a literal description of this mass shows of people's power at the height of a people's popular uprising. And I think it's so important to remember that what is now a war and a refugee crisis began a popular uprising. So it's a literal description, but it's also a metaphor. I think that Syrians have crossed many bridges. They've crossed the bridges from authoritarianism to revolution from revolution to war and eventually from the homeland to exile and all of those bridges have left Syrians trembling under the the sheer gravity of this tumult this loss this violence this pain and i hope my book for those who read it will remind them of of the gravity of the humanitarian catastrophe of the hope of that popular uprising that in many ways was abandoned by the world, and will shake people and encourage them to do more, to do more in solidarity with Syria, to do more in solidarity with Syrian refugees, to demand different policies from our own government and decision makers, and to uh, do all they can to see an end to this war and uh, the creation of a Syria in which Syrians can indeed return to their homeland their country but live there with freedom security and dignity
0: the book is we crossed a bridge and it trembled voices from syria the author is wendy perlman wendy thanks for this book and thanks for talking with us today
2: my pleasure thank you
0: that's it for today's Trump Watch. I want to thank our engineer, D'Angelo Jones, our producer, Renee Reynolds. As always, we thank Rai Cooter for our theme music, Mambo Sinuendo. Hey, Trump Watchers, if you missed part of this show or of any of our recent shows, listen online anytime you want at trumpwatchpodcast.com. Trump Watch returns next week at the same time on the same station with more talk about what Trump is actually doing, not just what he's tweeting. I'm John Wiener. Thanks for listening.